portion of Matthew 5. Matthew 5 uh, encapsulates, and the following chapters encapsulate, uh, Jesus' largest teaching section in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. So if you look here, even at this beautiful uh, illustration on the cover of your, your bulletin, what you see is what looks like mountains. That's to reflect the Sermon on the Mount teaching. But as I said earlier as well, they're glaciers, which means that what's underneath the surface is actually bigger than what you see up front. We talk a lot about grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ and how that's the motivation, the driving factor in our lives. When we listen to commands, we we are not as Christians those who are driven by those commands to obey them in order to earn God's favor. That actually will drive you into despair or into self-righteousness. What the gospel says is that we are driven by the love of Christ, by his mercy for us, and that actually drives us to want to follow him. But did you see how still we have that following part? We still have Jesus' commands. They just come second rather than first. So as we open up this passage, this portion, Jesus is going to talk just a little bit about that. About what he means by what the law is and what he's come to do. Let me read just this first few verses, 17 through 20. We're in Matthew 5. If you've got a Bible, you can open it there. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets... I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When I was a kid and I would go to a fair, and it still shows up at fairs these days. In fact, I saw this ride at the Comal County Fair this year. Have you seen this ride that spins around really fast, and it's spinning so fast that you get pressed up against the wall? And then eventually... The floor actually falls out from under you and your feet aren't on the floor anymore and you're just pressed against the wall. When I was a kid, I just thought it was so fascinating. I loved that ride. It was my favorite. You remember how we talked earlier, though, in the service that in the law there is a ceiling. There is what we aspire to and there is the floor that is the commandment. Well, Jesus is about to drop the floor out from under us. He's about to drop it out so that we actually see that what he requires is not simply an external following of his commands, but an internalizing in the heart. He talks about murder. Listen now to what he says about the relationship between killing and anger in our hearts. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Our Father, will you open your word to us this morning that we might come to know it more deeply? 
And we might come even to have the floor busted out from underneath us so that we might see the depth, the depth of your requirement for us. And Lord, that we might also, in response, see the depth of our need and the depth of your mercy and your love. Will you clear our minds and clear our eyes and unstop our ears, soften our hearts, that we would hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I, I just finished watching the, the show Longmire, all six seasons of it, and it's a pretty great show. I really loved it. Um, but amongst six seasons, and I think probably 10 or 11 episodes each season, nearly every show starts with a murder. Almost all the shows are about the solving of some sort of murder. Murder is one of those things that is just kind of big in pop culture. It's the thing that oftentimes stories uh, deal with. We see movies, uh, all kinds of movies. If you go to the theater right now, I'm sure you'll at least be able to find one movie that's built around murder. Murder on the Orient Express. That was just a very recent one. The Bible, of course, talks about murder and talks about it a lot. The Bible prohibits the killing, the unlawful killing of one person by another or multiple people by another. It's in the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. God takes life very seriously. Those who are created in his image, he wants to protect that image in him, in them. So he tells us not to take it. However, the Bible is also full of people doing just the opposite. You don't have to read very far. If you open up the Bible, you get to chapter 4 in Genesis, and you find Cain, a brother, killing his brother, Abel. They both come to offer an offering before the Lord, and the Lord accepts Abel's offering, and uh, Cain's is found lacking in some way. And so Cain feels inadequate, and to deal with his feeling of inadequacy, he kind of waits and hunts down and murders his brother. You skip ahead and you see actually uh, in Exodus, the next book in the Bible, chapter 2 in Exodus, Moses, one of the greatest figures in the Old Testament, as he is raised in Pharaoh's house, he looks out one day and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating one of the Hebrews, one of his own people. And he feels wronged because he identifies with his people. He feels injustice and because he feels wronged, he goes out and he actually kills that Egyptian taskmaster. If you fast forward a little bit more to 2 Samuel 11, we talked about this just a few weeks ago. King David, who's supposed to be protecting his country and his people, who's supposed to be using his power wisely to love and protect the people around him, sees Bathsheba, desires her, takes her for his own, and then as he's trying to get out of the situation and trying to figure out how to blame it on her husband Uriah, when he figures out that he can't, he simply has Uriah killed. David feels trapped. He feels trapped in his own sin or he feels like he can't get the things that he wants really easily. So his solution is to take Uriah's life. And then we looked at this passage last week from Matthew 2 where Herod, the king of Israel, who's also supposed to govern his people righteously and justly, when he hears of the Messiah who's come, he starts to get very nervous. He feels very threatened. And because he feels threatened, he kills thousands of children. All male children under two years old. Now, if I were to take a poll here and say, how many of you have felt so threatened by another that you decided to kill thousands of children? I doubt I would get very many responses. 
Or how many of you have felt so trapped in your own sin that you have decided to kill the husband of the woman that you committed adultery with? Probably still wouldn't get too many responses. Or if I said, how many of you have felt such righteous indignation and anger about being wronged and you've cried out for justice so much that you've gone out and you've killed somebody? Now again, you can watch lots of movies about that. That's just pretty much uh, the storyline of about half of the movies that you will watch. But I doubt many of you have done that. I doubt many of you have felt insecure enough to kill your brother. But let me bring it home just a little bit more and tell you some personal stories. There was one time when we lived in Baton Rouge, I probably have told you this story before, when uh, one of my children got so frustrated he ran into his room, slammed the door, and kicked at the window and broke the window. And he was six years old, and I was not six years old. I was actually an adult at the time. And upon hearing about this broken window and learning about the window that I was going to have to actually spend time fixing, and I was going to have to get up off of the couch watching the television show that I wanted to watch, upon hearing that, I got up from the couch, I stomped off into my room, and I slammed my door just as hard. And in doing so, I actually broke the lock in my door, and I locked myself in the door in the room, and I couldn't get out. I felt a loss. My leisure time, my freedom was taken from me, I felt. And I responded in anger. Anger so much that I broke my own bedroom door. I talked to a friend the other day who was recalling a fight that he once had with his wife. And in the midst of that fight, his wife said some very hurtful things to him. And it wounded him. And so in response to that wounding, he decided to write those things down. And he wrote down the words that she had said to him. And he took a picture of those things that she had said to him. And he kind of put a cool filter on it. And he literally kept it with him so that he could always remember those hurtful things, the way that he was wounded. And as he did so, his anger built and built and built. All of that, the cultivating of all of that anger step by step by step. I laid in my bed just a few nights ago, recounting all of the ways that I thought 2017 had gone poorly, particularly the ways that people had let me down. And I was sad and I was frustrated, but in my sadness, I just kind of cultivated my anger. And I stood there, laying in my bed, looking at the ceiling, and being angry and angry. Now, I could tell you multiple stories of how those times of anger have also turned into pouring out of very hurtful words from my mouth. Turned into pouring out of hateful things to the people around me, whether that be alone in my car when a guy cuts me off, or whether that be to my own children or my wife. The anger was kindled inside me. I tended it. I cared for it. I cultivated it. And then it poured out of me. Do you know what a bonsai tree is? Everybody know? If you, have you seen The Karate Kid? If you have, then you know bonsai, okay? Uh, bonsai is, is an art in Japan, an extremely old art. It's the cultivating of these gorgeous small trees built actually with the seeds of larger trees, but clipped and cared for and created in such a way that this little tree... Looks like it could be, you know, a 40 foot tall tree. It's built the same way. It's got the same branches. It's beautiful, but it's just a miniaturized version. The thing about bonsai, though, is that there is a very clear, uh, there is a very clear relationship between the small tree and the big tree. 
And that's very much of what Jesus is saying to us in this passage. I want you to just listen again to the words that he says about murder and about anger. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What Jesus is saying is that though anger is the bonsai, the small tree, murder is actually the larger one that it looks just like, and it takes the same cultivating of that anger as it does to cultivate the larger tree. Jesus is saying is that the same seed that grows anger in our hearts grows murder in our hearts. What he sees is the same sin. Now let's just think about these guys uh, throughout the Bible again. And think about what Jesus might be saying to us. See, what Jesus is saying is that when I feel inadequate in some way, when either I have failed the person around me or somebody has maybe pointed out my failures and it's just come to light and I feel inadequate, and then I take out my frustration and my anger on who I think is the object of making me feel inadequate... And I speak harshly to that person, or maybe I just remove myself in kind of some passive-aggressive way. When that happens, when I'm cultivating that anger in my heart, the same thing is happening in my heart that was happening in Cain's heart when he killed his brother Abel. When I respond in kind of righteous indignation, when I feel wronged, whether it's true or not, when I feel wronged and I begin to cultivate my anger and I respond to somebody verbally or online or maybe it's just in my head where you know we all run that little movie of, oh, this is what I would do if that person, you know, I'll tell you what I would say, right? And we run that whole little thing and we respond to them and we want to get them back because we want to even the scales. You've wronged me. I'm going to wrong you so we can make things all even. The same seed in my heart that produces that is the seed that produced in Moses' murder of that Egyptian taskmaster. When I, caught in my own sin or maybe just caught in my desire to want to have something that I can't have and I feel trapped and I don't know what to do with that feeling of feeling trapped and so I respond by cultivating my anger and it grows and it grows and I lash out with my words at somebody who I feel like has trapped me. The same thing is happening in my heart, Jesus says, that was happening in David's heart when he sent Uriah to the front of the fighting so that he would die so that David would be able to have what he wanted, which was Uriah's wife. When I feel threatened, when I feel threatened by whatever it is that threatens me and I get insecure and I don't know what to do with that insecurity and so I respond in anger. I respond with hateful language. I respond even in dreaming of the things that I might do to that person. The same thing, Jesus says, is happening in my heart that was happening in Herod's heart when he slaughtered thousands of children. See, what Jesus says is that the same seed that produces murder produces in us anger. They're connected And as we cultivate that anger, we are cultivating murderous intent. We may not actually carry it out to its final and full end, but what Jesus says is that what's happening in our hearts is the same thing. See, murder's the top of that iceberg that's above the water, but that anger is what's filling the bottom part. 
So what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? I want to give us three quick applications and then we'll be finished. The first is an application that Jesus actually gives for us. In fact, throughout this passage in Matthew 5 and throughout the next few weeks, Jesus actually gives us little applications that are very helpful. Listen to what he says here in verse 22. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. See, what Jesus says, first of all, is that we need to tend our relationships. The thing that that runs through both of those examples, he talks about a brother or a friend, someone that you know. When you come to church and you've got something that's against someone else or you know someone else has something against you, stop what you're doing and go and talk to them. Now listen, the primary reason why we break kind of in the middle of our service and we have a greeting time is because we want people to greet one another. We want people to to enjoy the fellowship. Uh, We want to promote the horizontal relationship that we've been given by Jesus by nature of the vertical relationship that he has made possible for us. So that's the main reason. But there actually is a secondary reason, and that's so that we can also allow time for people to go and deal with somebody that they may be at wrong, at, uh, at odds with. So that we can have time for somebody to go and say, hey, I think I said something the other day that, that looked like you winced a little bit when, I, when you said it. I'm sorry about that. And even in that short time to be able to say, I'm sorry, can we talk about that? Can we go to lunch maybe this week and we could talk more about it? Because I, I want to know how I hurt you. That, that's tending our relationships. Just like we might, you know, um, you know very wonderfully and minutely uh, tend a bonsai tree. Clipping and pruning and caring for and watering. That's what Jesus calls us to do with our relationships. To deal with them quickly, to tend them well. That's the first thing. Here's the second piece of application. Is also we need to tend to the root problem. Cain felt inadequate. David felt trapped, Moses felt wronged, Herod felt threatened. We need to be able to deal with those things in our hearts. To be able to say, these are the feelings that I have, this isn't just the anger that's pouring forth from them. And we need to be able to deal with those root problems. To be able even to remind ourselves, listen, when I'm feeling inadequate, I remind myself that Jesus is my adequacy. Jesus is all that I need. He's given me everything. When I am feeling uh, like I'm wronged, we remind ourselves, Jesus is my protector. He's the one who fights for me and wins my battles. When I'm feeling trapped, I realize Jesus is the one who is my freedom. He's the one who's given me freedom. When I'm feeling threatened, I know that Jesus is the one who protects me. That's how we deal with the root issues before we start tending our anger and have it pour out of our mouths or our bodies. We tend to those root issues. Here's the third piece, and I think this is very important, and hopefully this is going to be a thread for us that works through this whole series. We saw last week, you know, when we talked about the the Magi and about Herod, we saw these Magi come, these these men from from far away, from maybe a thousand miles away, and they had come and they had traveled a long time and they had come simply to kneel before the king. That is what we come to do as well. To proclaim the crown of Jesus. And when Jesus lays out these commands for us, when he tells us even about these matters of the heart, what he is telling us is that we need to expand the idea of the crown in our lives. So the crown needs to be large for us. 
But as the crown expands, so must the cross. Because if we have all crown and no cross, what we end up with is self-righteousness or despair. We end up seeing, well, here, Jesus, you've now you've dropped the bottom out. You, you've made this so that I can't get around ever being a murderer. What am I going to do? I guess I'm out. See, if we don't lift up the cross equally as we raise the crown and we see this is what the Lord has done for me. He's poured out his love for me on the cross. Friends, if, if you don't know what it means to be a Christian, this is it. This is simply what it means to be a Christian. is to realize that though Jesus' requirements are high, that we can't get to them, but he has actually given them to us through his own life and death on our behalf. That he has forgiven us our deep sin, and that he has made us his own, not because of something we've done, but in spite of it. We have to raise the crown and the cross together. Because if the cross is not high in our lives, then we will end up either self-righteous or we will end up in despair. This is what God has given us to chew on today. We're going to spend a little bit of time, just a minute or so, uh, pondering these things. There's usually a question that's up here on the screen. There's not one this morning. I'd like you just to think about this. Where are the places in your life that this passage touches you? Where are the places in your life where you tend to cultivate anger? Where it even pours out in your language or in your activity? Where are the places where Jesus is seeing that bonsai tree in your life as the same as that huge oak that overshadows everything? And how then are we called to lay ourselves before his cross? To seek and to find and to bask in his forgiveness? And then to be motivated by that grace to follow him. Let me pray for us and we'll spend some time with that. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for giving us your word even when it stings. Even when it feels like uh, the sword is sharpening to pierce directly into our hearts. It's good, Lord, that we do this. It's good that we look at a mirror that's clear. Sometimes it can be nicer to look at a foggy mirror or one that makes us look a lot taller or one that just hides our blemishes. But Lord, when we come to your word, that mirror is true. This is what you do to us. You expose our hearts. So Lord, we ask that we would be humbled, that we would come and sit before your light, that it might expose us. And Lord, also then so that we might seek and find the balm of forgiveness given to us by what Jesus has done. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.